You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, April 10th, 2007, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Perry DeAngelis. right on. Jay Novella. That's right. And Evan Bernstein. Happy birthday to the American Society of the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, everyone. Founded <laughs> in 1866. Happy birthday. Our, the lovely Rebecca Watson is off tonight. She's unable to, uh, to join us this evening. But we do have a special guest. We have a guest panelist this evening, one of our listeners, and an old-time friend, long-time member of the New England Skeptical Society, Jack Chodnicki. Jack, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Thanks, Steve. Hey, Jack. Hey, guys. Jack, is it true that at one time I performed psychic surgery on you? Uh, was it on me? Yes, I believe it is. I found a giant tumor, remember, in your, in your gut, and I, I believe I excised it. That is it. true. I, and, you know, it's, it hasn't returned since then. I've been much better. Thank you. <laughs> You're quite welcome. There's therapeutic touch, not psychic surgery. That's right. Yeah, I, I believe. Whatever. Yeah. Does it really matter? No. And I, I, no. Steve, whatever yeah, it is, it worked. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Evan, I want to thank you for that birthday notice for the ASPCA. Well, we are, you know, all lovers of animals here on this show to, to varying degrees, but um, <laughs> I think we do. I think we've proven that time we and have. again. Now, Jay, you have a correction from last week. Yeah, last week I, I mentioned that Shakespeare created the prefix un. Right, you were speaking and, off the cuff, as it were. Well, I wasn't totally off the cuff. I got the information from someone that I know that should, shouldn't should have the information correct, or I thought. And then... Um, after the show, I, I got an email from someone that um, just wanted to know my source, and I, you know, I was already in the midst of doing it. The prefix "un" was not created by Shakespeare; it predates uh, Shakespeare. I guess it, I guess it, it goes way back to Latin. And uh, one of the things that one of the people wrote to me said that Chaucer used it, and he predates Shakespeare by three hundred years. The thing that Shakespeare did do was create a many, many, many words that use the prefix. So he did create words using the prefix. He just didn't create the concept of the prefix. Such as impossible. Right. We have a few news items this week. The first one, uh, actually, Jack, you sent this one in to us. This is a, uh, a report of a, of a company that claims that they have a working quantum computer. Now, we've mentioned quantum computing on the show a couple of times before. I believe there was at least one science or fiction that involved it. And the, the basic uh, concept behind quantum computers is using quantum effects in order to, to create uh, computers that can do algorithms, etc. And they can function potentially thousands, millions of times faster than existing computers. But uh, the technology to create to, to, to exploit quantum effects and use it in a computer, the reports that, that, that we've been reading makes it seem like it's many years off, maybe 20 years off or something. You know, it's far enough out that no one's really sure how long it's going to take. Well, now a company claims that they have quantum computing now. Well, Steve, there's a key distinction, though. There's been lots of labs that have, uh, that have created basic quantum computers that have solved very simple problems. But the key claim with this company, though, is that they are creating the first commercial quantum computer. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. And we've, we've actually, in fact, that one science or fiction was the quantum computer that could do the calculation without even being turned on yet. That was, remember that one from a, from yeah. a, a while ago? So, yeah, I mean, they, they have been able to produce computing 
you know, effects in, in a lab setting, but not produce a computer that could actually like run applications, right? And so this is this guy's claiming that he has a computer that can use quantum computing to actually run applications. Well, and what is quantum computing specifically? Yeah, well, about? I, yeah, I hate that word quantum. I really do. So many, so many rogues and blackguards hide behind that word. Stick in front Don't of anything. Blame Don't blame quantum this, quantum, quantum that, quantum. Bla- I, I I agree with you, Bob. But you know, I mean, uh, you're right, Perry. It's like Deepak Chopra and quantum healing. That's all nonsense. Yeah, exactly. But, but quantum exactly. computing is an actual legitimate concept. It's a technology concept, and 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 the earliest. You know, we're at the beginning stages of this. Again, what this is, uh, what this is notable because he's claiming to basically have a product which it, it seems to be a decade or more ahead of everybody else. A lot of the experts agree that it seems to be too advanced for what they thought was possible at this time. Jay, to answer your question real fast, one of the key concepts behind quantum computing is the concept of a qubit. Now, you're all familiar with bits, binary digits. That's how classical computers represent data. It's either a zero or a one. A qubit, however, can not only be a one or a zero. It could also be a superposition of both one and a zero. That's one of the things that makes quantum computers so different is this concept of a qubit. This quantum computer that this company claims to have created is supposed to have 16 qubits, which I believe is uh, the most qubits that any quantum computer uh, to date uh, has ever had. 16 qubits will apparently allow a quantum computer to perform about 64,000 operations instantaneously. Now, the goal is to reach many hundreds and even thousands of qubits. That's matrix Once a quantum computer reaches that goal, then uh, conventional computers will truly be left in the dust. Right. Well, are the computer manufacturers actually working? Are are they actually working on real quantum computers? Absolutely. This is uh, this is Jordy Rose, in he, the founder of the D-Wave Systems. That's the company we're talking about. And this is an article in the New York Times talking about a recent demonstration that he did. He, he had a, a black box, which he said was a, com- a quantum computer, and it was able to do things like solve Sudoku puzzles. And determine the optimal seating uh, arrangement for wedding guests. Right, or search for a protein in a database to find a close match. So basic things like that. But the problem here is that yeah, the, so the the black box did these these tasks, but we don't. Nobody knows what's going on inside. He he hasn't told anybody how he's doing it, how the how the computer allegedly works. Not and in no any one, detail. Not in any. And real no one detail. has seen the guts. You know, no one's actually seen. So I think who, there's a cat in the box. So nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows if, if his claims are real. You know, and until he 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 shows. At least enough, you know, to convince the scientific community that what that his claims are legitimate, you know, his claims deserve a certain amount of skepticism. It, it kind of it smells a little bit of the sort of Pons and Fleischmann cold, you know, cold fusion right. fiasco, right. or this guy, you know, could be trying to just lure investors into his project and sort of you know making claims that you know maybe are not uh, are, are not legitimate yet, but. But we don't. But no. But we don't know. Is he actually trying to obfuscate? Is he is he hiding things? He's making claims that he's not supporting with evidence. Well, right. And, and he didn't go through the process. He didn't. You know. Then the Raelians are obviously backing him. There's something fishy here. <laughs> he didn't publish the steps you know, leading up to it, and these kind of technological jumps usually don't happen in a vacuum. You know. Yeah, I mean, it is it is kind of a far fetched claim to to uh, have a you know a functioning quantum computer at that scale today and. 
you know, there's a lot of people who you know, have no idea how to do it, and these guys claim, "Oh yeah, sure, we have it working," but you can't you can't look to see how we did it. Yeah, is he f- afraid that someone's going to steal his his model? I think that's part of it, and that's probably why he's so reticent. But he is later this year. I think second quarter 2007, he's going to the computer is going to be available for for many people to vet and to, to go over and to uh, examine and to use and, and with some of these real world applications. Well, something solved the problems. You know, you, you don't know what was in there. <laughs> what do you think? He's got a midget in the box, Bob? What are you saying? No, what are you getting at? <laughs> yeah. A laptop, you know. The test that he demonstrated actually represented much less computing power than your average desktop computer. Right? So it, was not, it wouldn't be far-fetched that there was, you know, a more conventional computer inside. You know, Let, let's wait till it's vetted and see if it right. holds up as well right. as the Jesus ossuaries. Right, but, but his point is, though, that uh, brute speed right now isn't as important as the fact that his quantum computer did actually uh, perform these calculations. And supposedly his technology is very well suited for scalability, such that over the course of the next 12 months, he's going to you know, create increasingly more robust uh, uh, you know, quantum chip designs. And uh, by 2008, I believe he's planning on having one that can do about 1,000 qubits. So if it's as scalable as he right. claims, that would be that would be pretty interesting. Yeah. But we just have to. So wait yeah, so and this see. guy Rose is, is saying that he's not going through like the peer-reviewed, published process that the marketplace will judge the value of his material. And in that sense, he's right. If he can deliver the goods, if it actually works, then he will have proven his point. Uh, if he can't, right. In the meantime, he's got forty-four million right, bucks to right. play with. You know, if if this thing really worked, if and if he just patented it, that's a patent that'd be worth a billion dollars easy. You know, if you if you he had the base, you know, if it's like being the inventor of the transistor and having the patents on that, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I hope it's true. I, I really do. But there's a lot. There's a lot of red flags, though. I mean, seriously, this is when people have the black box. You can't look inside. They're making claims that seem to be, you know, a couple of generations ahead of where everybody else is. There's no trail. You know, it's like Iran curing AIDS without any kind of research trail. It's just it 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 doesn't. It's uh, suspicious to it's say suspicious. the least. It's suspicious. It's the modern day yeah. dynamizer. Not quite that bad, but we'll we'll keep an eye on it, <laughs> and it'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out. The next news news item also is in the area of, of physics. The Fermi Lab, which is a very prestigious you know physics lab, it was contracted to to build components for the they, the large hadron collider, <laughs> and they they made a boo boo. Um, they they made a couple of of calculation errors, and ap- apparently these these element these were so-called elementary mistakes in the design of the magnets that they were um, the contracted to build did not get picked up on the multiple engineering reviews that occurred before these things were put in place and basically what I think what my reading of what happened is that the the they did not make they did not calculate the forces properly. They made an error in figuring out how much force would be involved. So they didn't build the thing strong enough to handle the forces. And when they turned it on, it basically blew up. Oopsie. <laughs> well, it, did, it didn't really blow up, Steve. There wasn't any combustion happening. It wasn't like a right, no, know, but fiery it, it, it sort of physically, fell apart. Physically, it sort of you know, collapsed. Yeah. It, got ripped, it ripped apart. Yeah. You forget to carry a two, and there's four billion out the window. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like when they went right? to uh, land it's one like of those. Mars probe. Yeah, exactly. One of the Mars probes. They they count some metric versus uh, right. versus uh, you know classic. You know, engineers are supposed to be good at this thing. Yeah, a quote from uh, from one guy from CERN. There was a hell of a bang. The tunnel housing the machine filled with helium and dust, and we all 
and we had to call in the fire brigade to evacuate the place. The people working on the test were frightened to death, but they were all in a safe place, so no one was hurt. Well, that's good. No one was hurt. Yeah, uh, that is good. It was, it was bad. But you yeah, know, Peter, uh, Peter O'Dunn, the director of the lab, said, quote, We are dumbfounded that we missed some very simple balance of forces. Not only was it missed in the engineering design, but also in the four engineering reviews carried out between 98 and yeah. 2002. I mean, shapers. Now, for you conspiracy nuts out there, this is pretty interesting. Fermilab was contracted by CERN to create these magnets. Now, Fermilab also has researchers running the Tevatron, which is the the biggest uh, running collider on the planet, I believe. And they're looking for one of the holy grails of particle physics, the Higgs boson, the hypothetical particle that confers mass to all matter. Now, whoever finds this Higgs boson will just go down in history, and it turns out that this delay that CERN is now going through might be just the right amount of time that Fermilab needs uh, for its Tevatron to find the Higgs boson. Isn't that convenient? Interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, the, the, the axiom goes, never blame on malice what can be more easily explained through incompetence. You expect yeah, more from true. them, yeah. though. So, the, you know, true. it's actually... It, it's. It, you do, but you know what? Yeah, it's it's very agree. easy for me to imagine how that kind of thing can happen. Because... You assume that people are doing their job. You know, when you're reviewing the specs, you know, you should repeat all the math and everything, but you could certainly see how somebody would get lazy. Say, oh, For engineering reviews. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, I'm Steve, sure they and, did the, the math correctly. You know, they didn't bother to recheck the math, obviously. Uh, and you could just – you could easily see how that could happen. If you were in charge of, of Fermilab, would you fire these people? Hmm. It depends on how irreplaceable. Yeah, that's they just are. it. I don't know how how many of these people mm. are out there to be. Yeah, uh, this is a black guy from Fermilab. But if right. they discover the right. Higgs boson, it'll all be forgotten. Well, it'll be tainted yeah. though. It'll be tainted because they sabotaged their competition. Sabotage. <laughs> it's just very <laughs> ironic. It's bad. I mean, it's, it's 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 all very bad. Unfortunately, it slows down you know, the progress of uh, science. That uh, that certain explosion if there was helium everywhere. So I wonder if all those guys like sounded like chipmunks when they were calling up nine one one. There were a couple of dieting related news items in the last couple of weeks that I wanted to talk about. We've talked about the diet fads in the dieting industry before on this show. Basically, you know, the the bottom line is our position is that. The only real proven way to lose weight is to burn more calories than you consume. And that that eat less move more. That formula calories in versus calories out is it. There is that's the bottom line and there's no way around that formula. There's a I, I noticed a couple of recent articles that basically support that position that you know that fad diets don't work and that you basically just have to exercise and, and eat less. There was one uh, study out of UCLA and they report basically that dieting does not work. Not that any particular diet that doesn't work, but that dieting in and of itself doesn't work. They say that you can initially lose 5 to 10% of your weight on any number of diets. Basically, they all work about the same. And once you make the decision to diet and start thinking about your eating, yeah, you're probably going to lose some weight. But almost everybody gains it back. The diets do not lead to sustained weight loss or health benefits for the vast majority of the people that do it. So, you know, the Basically, what they're saying is you have to just change your habits. Lifestyle forever. change, yep. Yeah. You can't go on a diet. It just, you know, it's kind of stating the obvious. It's, it's, but it's, you know, the thing is, there is a multi billion dollar industry that's dedicated to convincing people that that's not true, that there, there are ways around, 
you know, the calories in versus calorie out formula. Steve, isn't this also the study that found that vegetarianism causes Alzheimer's and makes you infertile? No, again, that you're again, Perry, you're referring to your fantasy land <laughs> article, the, the journal of, of Perry's fantasies. It's a big, uh, it's noticed, a big journal. Steve, I noticed it is. I've read this many times where they say um, it's unhealthy to lose weight and then gain it back. Yo-yoing, yeah. What, why is that bad? Why would it be bad to say what I've read when you yo-yo diet, you're losing water months. and you're losing some muscle and you're losing some fat. And then, of course, when you gain that weight back, you're gaining primarily fat back. So that at the you know at the end of the day, you're pre- you pretty much can weigh the same, except that you now you have more fat and less muscle. And that seems to make us you know intuitive sense. Although I've never seen any you know any studies on that. Now, one of the things they learned from yeah. doing these studies was that um, dieting was actually one of the uh, the best predictors of future weight gain. The fact that you may have been on a diet before any of these yes. studies were done was one of the uh, the best indicators that you would that you would mo- more you know more than likely gain weight in the future. I just uh, I just thought that was pretty funny. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. So one study found that 50% of dieters weighed more than 11 pounds over their starting weight five years after the diet. So it's a, it is a bad predictor. It also does say, Jay, just to answer your question, that uh, the sci- that scientists do not fully understand how such weight cycling leads to adverse health effects. So there are documented ill health effects, but they're not really sure how that happens. The other study compared different diets. And, and basically, this was a comparison of a, a high-carb versus a low-carb diet. Now, we reported recently on uh, another study which compared, like it was a real-life comparison of some of the comp of the, uh, the popular diets, like the Atkins diet you know, versus others. And it showed that the, the people who were on the Atkins diet lost the most weight over the year of the study. But actually, again, like like what we just talked about, people in the study lost the weight early on in the first three to four months, and then they gained some of that weight back, and they were actually in the process of gaining the weight back towards the end of the study. Um, and the weight loss was very modest, you know, like in 10 pounds over a year for people who weighed, were significantly overweight. What This, this study um, was conducted at the Gene Mayer U.S. Department of Agriculture Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging at Tufts University. And they just compared a high, high glucose or glycemic diet to a low glycemic diet. And the, the new thing about this diet is that it's really the first large well-controlled study where they gave their subjects all of the food that they were supposed to eat. So they weren't just telling them how to eat. It wasn't a real-life comparison. They wanted, they wanted to know not how, this, not how these diets behave in the real world, but is there any physiological difference to eating a high-glycemic versus a low-glycemic diet? Steve, does glycemic in this case mean sugar or it means carbs? carbs. Carbohydrates. Yeah, it's not just okay. sugar. It's also starches. Carbohydrates. I love carbohydrates. It's all sugar, Steve, right? No, starches are not sugar and they're carbohydrates. But your body so starch- converts them to sugar, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yes. But yes. they're not sugar? In terms of what you're eating, so you know, breads and pasta and grains and those kind of things, those are all carbohydrates too. It's all good. So that's the, that's the, that's the one thing is that they, they really wanted to control as much as possible what people were actually eating. They, they made the diets as equal as they could in terms of the appeal and fiber and, and volume um, and, of course, caloric intake. But they, were, they differed only in the high glucose diet was 60% and the low – 60% glucose and the low one was 40% glucose, which is not super low, admittedly. It's only – so, and again, this is not this – is, this is a moderately low uh, – this is a 40% carbohydrate diet, not the super low carbohydrate diet, you know, like, like 
15 or 10 percent or something. And at any rate, they also did another thing which is very interesting is that they used some bio, biochemical markers to, to actually assess – if the if the if the subjects were sticking to the diet or if they were cheating, so they did not rely upon self reporting and they were they so they were able to show that yes, both groups did cheat about sixteen percent in one group seventeen percent in the other, so it was very comparable, so there was no difference in how many in, in them you know basically eating food that was not being prepared for them as part of the study so as this is so far the best controlled study in terms of what the people were actually getting and what they found was that there was zero difference between the 60% carb diet and the 40% carb diet so this is significant evidence against the notion that adjusting the proportion of macronutrients specifically in this case carbohydrates makes any difference to uh, to weight loss Again, weight loss is about calories. It's not about where the calories are coming from. Interesting. Good study. Yeah. Good, it was a well-done hmm. well study. And it, and it yeah, moves, that not, and it, not relying on self-reporting seems like a very good yes, uh, control yes. measure. And the other thing is, again, just you know, my impression of this whole body of research, which I've been trying to follow closely for the last few years, is that you know, the, the nutritionists, the, real, the people who are doing the, the real academic cutting-edge nutrition research, they, this is, they know this. You know, this is, this is where, what the research is showing. Yes, things like glycine. In, index and the kind of fat that you eat, you know, makes makes a difference in terms of like diabetic diabetic health and heart health, etc. But in terms of weight loss and weight gain, it's all about calories. The popular sort of low carb diet or low fat diet, however, that is all existing outside of the actual research that's being done. You know, does anyone here know how a calorie is calculated? Yeah, I do. How, Jay? It's the amount of energy it takes to increase what what one cubic centimeter of water one degree was it one gram of water or something yeah but that that's that's a calorie in physics that's a unit of energy a calorie in diet is actually a kilocalorie it's actually a thousand right. of those calories that's right i, I would have oh. gotten to that if you do that i'm oh, sorry jay <laughs> it's all right steve just sped up the process <laughs> he paused you know i had to, had to leap into the pause all right next uh, next news item um a physicist claims that he is on the brink of a breakthrough in a time travel experiment, and he just needs $20,000 to complete the experiment. That's all. So he could only get a quantum computer. Right. For, finish that'll this. take $44 yeah. million. Dollars. <laughs> so, Steve, is the guy, is the guy, is the scientist legit? Is this guy, like, for well, real? I mean, this is, the scientist is John Kramer. He's a physicist at the University of Washington. And he says, all we need to keep going is maybe $20,000, but nobody seems interested in funding this project. Now, what he's doing is he's trying to set up an experiment to coax you know, photons of light to, to travel back in time a bit. You know, he's not talking about like, sending a person back in time or anything like that. Uh, he's just trying to establish the, the principle, you know, the, the principle within, within physics, and I, guess, I guess specifically quantum mechanics, that – that light, that photons of light can actually go back in time. It would certainly be very interesting. Not only that they can, but the fact that they do, and that's part of their makeup. He has an interpretation of quantum mechanics that he calls the transactional interpretation of quantum mechanics, where he posits that light can, in a way, communicate with itself back in time. And he uses this to explain quantum entanglement and the double slit experiment and other paradoxes. So I see this time travel experiment as an extension of that belief. Yeah. And this contradicts specifically the error of time hypothesis of Stephen Hawking. 
which doesn't make it wrong. It just means he is sort of going out on a theoretical limb, which is fine. And I think it would be, you know, especially in the area of, you know, quantum physics, it's, it is really, I think, stretching the human ability to, un, to grab, grapple with, you know, nature at its most fundamental level. And we need people who are thinking in new directions and thinking in ways that seem unconventional. And it, it also, he has a, he has, it's a t- testable hypothesis. He wants to do experiments. You know, he's not just, uh, you know, he's not just making these hand waving ex- explanations about what he thinks is going on. He's, He's an experimentalist, you know. That's good. So, yeah, again, we want guys like him doing stuff like this. Yeah, yeah. Who knows what what what, what it will? Am be I to. naive in think in my thinking when I'll I say, say so. to myself, perhaps when I say <laughs> to myself that the uh, that time travel will never be <laughs> conquered, at least going in the past, because if it ever were, we'd have future guys walking around now. Isn't that the classic uh, Stephen Hawking argument? What did he call it? The uh, chronology yeah, there always has to be that The universe conspires to keep us from traveling back in time because it would cause paradoxes. That was one thing that Hawking said, which may be Perry. true. And the other thing is, yeah. we're talking about sending photons back in time, and you know, even if you, I know, I know, Hawking know. says that yeah, there may be some way that some real exotic sort of conditions that you can create that theoretically can allow for the transmission of you know some fundamental particles or energy back in time, but sending a macroscopic object back in time is probably impossible. And, and I don't think that you know, this guy's experiments, you know, Kramer's experiments would, uh, would change that, that fundamental He's know, not even claiming that. He's not even, uh, you know. No, no. Well, I mean, how do we know that there aren't guys from the future walking around, you know? I saw some weird they're, dude at the they're, grocery they're store. The, you they know, could be keeping the themselves aliens. secret like the aliens yeah. and the big feet. It's true. It's true. In yeah, fact, you, you, could, you yeah. could render that idea unfalsifiable, sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not a bad theory. Yeah. It's not a bad theory. One more quick news item, and uh, I just wanted to report on this because we just recently talked about the whole idea of a meta-analysis, and, and I just happened to see an article published, again, analyzing how meta-analyses are used. So basically, a meta-analysis is when you, when you pull together multiple studies to try to see what does all the, all the data taken together show, a positive effect or a negative effect. And what one of the problems with the meta-analysis is that uh, if there is any publication bias, then that will throw off the results of a meta-analysis. meta-analysis. In other words, you're looking at you know, whether or not a homeopathic remedy is useful for headaches. And there are 20 studies that are published, and you say you know, some are positive, some are negative. You pull it all together. But what if the chances of getting a study published are more likely if it's positive than if it's negative? That is a publication bias, and that would then for skew the meta-analysis towards a positive result. In fact, it's generally considered that there is a positive publication bias within the literature, that magazine, that journals are much more likely to publish an article that shows a positive effect than a negative effect. There's also the so-called file drawer effect, which means that researchers are more likely to submit a paper if it's positive, and they're more likely to put a negative paper into the file drawer, which means that there's a submission bias as well. Now, statisticians use a technique called you know, asymmetry analysis, where they try to take that into account. They say, you know, if the journals in general publish 60% positive and 40% negative papers. So we're going to assume that there's that publication bias in our meta-analysis and make a statistical fudge to, to, to take that into account. What this new uh, paper is looking at is 
that specific thing is looking at the the use of statistical methods to adjust for this sort of asymmetry in publication. And, and what they basically cl- concluded was that the methods that are being used are, are not adequate, that the, the, the publication bias is, is still a significant problem for meta-analyses and biases the outcomes of those meta-analyses and that the, uh, the asymmetry analysis is not adequate to account for that. You mean they should use, it, they should use a larger amount? Oh, they, they should assume that the publication bias is greater. Is greater. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm not sure if that was just as simple as that. It may be that, or it's just, or it's just that it's inaccurate, or it doesn't c- appropriately correct for the problem. Okay. Um, so I'll have a link to that. It was just just reported. It's actually just a press release. It's not act- actually online yet, so I couldn't. I don't have the link at present, but hopefully I'll have it by the time on the show notes by the time the show airs. Um, so it's interesting. It's getting another, you know, taking meta analysis down another notch because you know they. It, it, it does seem that you can basically almost prove anything you want to with a meta-analysis. There are so many choices that you make in how you gather the data and analyze the data that you can kind of bias it one way or another. And they certainly are no substitute for a single, large, definitive, well-designed trial. You, um, you think meta-analyses themselves should be cast out, Steve? No, I think they serve a role. They're just hard to do, and they have to be looked at as as preliminary. I don't think that they will ever or should ever have the weight of a l- single large definitive trial. So just, okay. just, just it's evidence. It just needs to be put into its proper context. And this kind of analysis helps us understand what context to put it in. Well, let's move on to your emails. The first one comes from Fibo in from Philadelphia, USA. And he I writes... I just like to say I love this guy. <laughs> you're, you're easy, Perry. He says, Dear well, skeptics, you had some very nice things to say about moi on the forums. I get over yourself. Okay, big the guy. interview with David Seaman, D.C., has left me confused. When I was a kid and my parents took me to the chiropractor, I thought he was just a doctor who specialized in the back. Since then, I've heard about the woo-woo origins of chiropractic and figured that all chiropractors were quacks. I think I learned from the interview that modern chiropractors are physical therapists who specialize in bones and muscles of the back and that the woo-woo chiropractors are to chiropractic what homeopaths are to pharmacology. But if that's the case, why wasn't that emphasized during the interview? Why are modern chiropractors still targets of the skeptical community? I'm not saying that I believe in chiropractic, but that maybe chiropractic is not what we skeptics tend to believe it is. What do you think, FIBO? So I wanted to address this just to maybe clear up whatever lingering confusion there was from the interview. Of you. The problem is that you're trying to put all chiropractors into one box. You're trying to the premise of your question is so what are chiropractors? Are they legitimate or are or are they are they quacks or what? And the problem is, and I think we did discuss this, you know, with with uh, Dr. Seaman, is that the, the term chiropractic or chiropractor is used to refer to a very diverse gr- profession, a very diverse group of people. Included within them are total, you know, woo-woo, you know, quacks. Those who believe that. You, know, you can manipulate the spine and alter the flow of life energy, and then you can cure basically anything by doing this at sort of at one end of the spectrum. Then there are those who – So-called straights. So-called straights. And there are mixers who believe that to some degree from anywhere from zero to 99 percent, right? So they, they may mostly buy into it. They may buy into it a little bit. They may change the jargon to say, well, it's nerve impulses, not life energy, but they still basically do the same thing. Or they may completely reject it. They also mix in – some a lot of other things they mix in homeopathy, acupuncture, herbal remedies, applied kinesiology, magnet therapy, and and you know and lots of other things. The problem is we don't really have 
um, reliable numbers on the percentage of chiropractors who use these other modalities and to what percentage. You can only really infer it by the, 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 those few surveys that have been done, by looking at advertising on the Internet, by talking to chiropractors, etc. The, the sense that, that I have and that you know, a lot of my colleagues uh, in the, the sort of the health fraud or the alternative medicine uh, skeptical community have is that it, the, the percentage of chiropractors who you are either straight or who use a significant um, proportion of disproven alternative modalities like homeopathy or acupuncture is, is pretty high. It's like 80 to 90%. The, the percentage of chiropractors who directly reject subluxation theory and the, and the more alternative aspects of chiropractic are really only a few percent. But chiropractors like David Seaman and others have argued to me that those chiropractors who think of themselves as scientific think that the rate, it's like more like 30 or 40 percent are, are scientific. And we don't really have any objective answers, numbers to really to answer that question objectively. So I don't know. But when we criticize chiropractors, I always try to make sure that I'm you know, clarifying it at least to, to enough of a degree to say, you know, those chiropractors who espouse this, you know, philosophy, this belief, um, or that some or most chiropractors, you can't really talk about all chiropractors in one breath because, again, they're just too diverse. So that, and that will be a, a continuing source of confusion as long as, you know, such a diverse group is, is still referred to by that single unfortunate label. Steve, is there anything that chiropractors do that you cannot find? An MD who who does the same thing. I didn't ask that properly. What I'm trying to say is, I hear what you're saying. Is, yeah, so yeah. Do, do chiropractors do anything unique to them? Or right? And the answer to that is no. That uh, the, anything legitimate that chiropractors do, there are other people other than chiropractors who do it. So you can if, find an MD to do it. Yeah, there are like spinal manipulative therapies, like the one real hardcore chiropractic intervention. Right. So why choose a chiropractor? Why why, why risk it? Why, why, you know, say, oh, I don't know if he's going to be a 90%, a 10%, or fit. Yeah. Just go to an MD. <laughs> you know, that's, that certainly is one option. You know, you could choose a physiatrist, and a physiatrist are probably the, the closest medical specialty to what chiropractors do. They're, re, they're rehab physicians. Many physiatrists do spinal manipulative therapy and, 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 and use other similar I would have thought it's methods. an orthopedist. What, what exactly is a physiatrist? Well, orthopedists are surgeons, you know, so they, they operate. Oh, physiatrists okay. are not surgeons. They're they're rehab specialists, rehabilitation specialists. And they're also physical therapists. They also work closely with physical therapists, and some physical therapists will do, do manipulative therapy as well. And there are also um, osteopathic physicians you know, may incorporate manipulative therapy you know, in, into their care. If chiropractors did confine themselves to that proportion of what they do that is reasonable uh, and, and based on science, then I would have no problem with them. I do think, and I, I did start this conversation with, with, with David, I don't think we really got too far into it. Uh, I think that the ultimate solution, and I don't think this, this may never happen, but I think really the best solution would be to have chiropractors essentially merge with mainstream scientific medicine, You know, basically make it a subspecialty of MDs, of physicians. You could still do all the legitimate stuff that you want to do as a chiropractor. You could still be a, phys- a physical sports medicine you know physical therapy, rehab, whatever, um, still you could even specialize in back pain. To be quite honest with you, I would love to have specialists in back pain that, that really had all the modalities at their fingertips and, and, and could really be comprehensive care of back pain because it really is a difficult problem. It's, it's nothing easy about treating chronic back pain. But there's historically, historically there's so much animosity there that, that 
Uh, I don't think that the, the chiropractors don't want to have anything to do with MDs, basically. Steve, could part of the problem also be uh, money in that a insurance company might have to, would possibly pay a chiropractor less, right? So therefore insurance companies might want to push their clients to go see chiropractic instead of real doctors. Yeah, so there's two aspects to that. So the one thing is that do insurance companies send, you know, would they prefer to send their the people that they cover to alternative practitioners who are chip, cheaper than MBs, MDs, even though they're not legitimate and they don't work? And the answer to that is yes, that they would be happy to pay for whatever's cheapest and they don't care if it works or not. The other component, though, is when you actually compare the cost of chiropractic care to care by a physical therapist or an MD, there's no advantage. It actually is... Uh, more expensive in some studies than uh, than non chiropractic care. Part of it is, you know, again, it's the philosophy of the chiropractor. If those chiropractors say, you know, like David Seaman, who who's saying, I'm going to treat you for one to two weeks for acute care, and that's it, and then we're done. That's that's cheaper. But if you know they suck them into longer term care, then it could the, the costs could be anything. You know, again, sometimes they'll they'll say you need lifetime preventive adjustments. You, you know? showed me a book once, Steve, or it was in one of your articles. You put the cover of the book on there, How to Make a Patient for Life. Right. That was well, one there, of the- there are, and this is one of the things you know, that we referred to briefly, there are practice building seminars you know, for chiropractors where they basically tell them how to suck people into becoming lifetime patients. You know? And that, that end of the spectrum, really, it really is just a scam, basically. I think the, the the straight chiropractors, you know, have a lot of cultish features, you know, in terms of what they believe and, and how insulated they are in their beliefs. Now, guys, do you think that the average person knows, like, what chiropractor is all about? I mean, I think a lot of people just probably think that it's just a doctor that specializes in back pain, so... No, there's a lot of complexities to the whole story, and I think the public, by and large, is not aware of the ins and outs of it. Let's go on to the second email. This one comes from Matthew Kaplan who gives his location as USA slash France. Um, so I guess he's travels Canadian? back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> and he writes, Hi all, just thought you all might enjoy this send-up of the 9-11 conspiracy theories. And then he gives a, uh, a website. Now this is uh, a very funny article published on Websurdity. And the name of it is Uncom- Uncomfortable Questions. Was the Death Star attack an inside job? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll have the link. Interesting. Did you guys have a chance to read this? No. It's really f- it's yeah, very it's funny. funny. Basically, yeah, it it's, talks about the, you know, the, the Star Wars movie and the attack on, in the first movie on the Rebel base and the, you know, where Luke Skywalker blew up the Death Star. And talks about it as, as if it were from like an imperial citizen wondering how this band of rebels could have possibly destroyed the greatest weapon that the Empire ever developed. And what's funny about it, it's very clever. It's, it's satire at its best. It really shows how you can use satire to expose the absurdity of, of someone's position or arguments. So I think what's, what's most clever about it is that it shows how um, f- from a naive position that you can throw doubt onto anything and that you then that details that so the, the 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 article's written from the point of view of somebody who doesn't know the backstory right who like didn't see the movie like, somebody who's actually like an imperial citizen who doesn't know the relationship between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker and all the things that happened he just knows this kind of superficial details the kind of things that like they say that we would know about what happened on 9/11 and then 
from that naive position, he, he draws all these correlations and, and asks all these questions that makes it seem like there's some inside conspiracy going on. Now, of course, reading the article, if you've seen the movies, you know that the questions are all nonsense because, you know, we know the backstory. We know what really went on. So again, it showed what it, it, I think it does a really good job of showing how when you are starting from a position of basically of ignorance, of not knowing what really went on, and you're just looking at superficial details, you can make, you can make it, anything seem sinister just by sort of asking these naive questions. And that's what conspiracy theorists do. So give it a read. It's funny, especially if you like Star Wars. But, it, but when you read it, I mean, you, it does expose the kind of thought processes that conspiracy theorists go through. And I think in that w- way, it is satire at its best. My favorite part of that is the uh, picture of Emperor Palpatine reading uh, the Pet Bantha to, uh, to young students while this is all happening. Young Sith oh, students, God. yeah. <laughs> a little parody on the, what yeah. George, George Bush was doing. The next email comes from Greg Lloyd in the U.S., and he writes, Hello all, wonderful show. I look forward to your podcast every week. Stephen, have you read Hugh Ross' testable model uh, regarding creationism in his book, Creation as Science. This model is being shoved down my throat by my creationist friend, and not being a scientist, I have no way to prove it right or wrong. I've chosen thus far to just smile and tell him I didn't know enough about it. But I would love to know your thoughts as a skeptic and scientist. I assume the model has not followed peer review as it was released via a book. He does, however, have a credible education in physics and astronomy. Ross's education carries some real weight in an argument, but that doesn't make his theory correct. Then he gives some links. Well, yeah, we'll have the link on, on our notes page. This is to uh, Hugh Ross's website, uh, Reasons to Believe. And what he's trying to argue for here is a testable creation model. Uh, there's a lot of nonsense in here. We don't really have time to go into all of it. But there was a couple of things I want to cover because I, I think there we haven't spoken about them specifically before. So we have criticized creationism and intelligent design on the on the premise that it's not science because they do not make testable hypotheses and if you if you if your your hypotheses are not testable then you're not science period so i guess hugh ross decided that he needed to correct that deficiency by trying to phrase creationism in as a testable hypothesis. First of all, you know, Hugh Ross is an old earth creationist. You know, creationism is sort of a big umbrella that includes people from young earth creationists who think the earth is literally 6,000 or 10,000 years old. Old earth creationists like Hugh Ross think the earth is billions of years old, but that the life on earth was created by God. And there are even those who think that life evolved, but it was sort of pushed forward by God or that it unfolded in a way intended by God. So there's there's a a huge spectrum of what could technically be called creationism. Hugh Ross is an old earth creationist. But but what he does here, he makes a classic mistake of pseudoscientists, and he really demonstrates his utter and complete lack of understanding of what science is, how it works, and what a testable hypothesis is. He gives 20 um, ways in which... Uh, creation, the creation model. It's still telling that they use the word model and not theory, can be tested. But what he's actually, he's not making any predictions. That's the problem. He's not saying that if creation were true, this is what we would predict from that, and this is how we can test it. That's how science works. What he's doing is taking stuff we already know and then retrodicting, or basically just shoehorning what we already know into creationism. 
That's not what science means about making predictions, about having a testable model. And of course, all of his specific components are, are wrong in that they do not support creationism and they certainly do not distinguish. And this is the other thing he doesn't get, that if you're going to say that this piece of information supports creationism, then it has to be something that's compatible with creationism and not evolution. And, and none of the things that he, um, that he lists are incompatible. Either they're, they're a false premise, they're wrong, or they're not incompatible with evolution. For example, he lists the Cambrian explosion, you know, as if that is somehow outside of evolutionary theory. Now, the Cambrian explosion was the, the first appearance of multicellular life. It took millions of years. That was very rapid geologically. You know, once the first multicellular animals started to appear, they basically were filling a new niche, and they rapidly diversified. Um, so you had this explosion of, uh, of, of animals um, and, and multicellular plants and animals. Also, part of this quote-unquote explosion was that when they first evolved hard parts that fossilize, then you're going to see um, the sudden appearance of many types of animals that fossilize in the fossil record. It's like the fossil record turns on. But that, that doesn't mean that there wasn't a longer period of evolving through soft body organisms before it got to that point. So in any way, so that, he, that's a false premise. It doesn't distinguish between creation and, and evolution. And it's also not something that was predicted by creation, you know, that, that there would be, have been something like the Cambrian explosion in the fossil record. The frequency and extent of mass extinctions. Again, how does that flow from creationism. He says Genesis is perfect fit with the fossil record. Wow. Yeah. Huh? Right, yeah. Right. Right. That's just a complete misreading of the uh, <laughs> Did the, I miss the a memo somewhere? Record. Molecular clock rates. So here's what he's saying about the molecular clock rates. This is the other component of this article uh, that is utter nonsense. What he says is that um, mutations could not possibly account for the evolution of life. Now, one thing that he does is semi-legitimate in that he he says if you know we know what the mu- the basic mutation rate is so we know how fast mutations can occur and you know and how many differences there are between species so could this mutation rate account for the the evolution of of the rate of the evolution of life that's been documented in the fossil record and in, in our you know genetic diversity and he does you know what he calls a crude mathematical model and comes up with the fact that you know we we would have needed many more animals over a much greater period of time in order for life to have evolved, but it's not just mutation rate. You, yeah, right. Of course, Bob, you hit upon the the fault, the flaw in his calculations that he's he's assuming that mutations are the only thing. Like you know, at first when you started talking about this guy, Steve, I said to myself, well, let's give him an E for effort. I mean, at least he's trying, you know, yeah. to to turn creation into a Tesla. But no, after not. listening to your explanations. He's not even doing that. No, no, he's not. He's, he's it's, just, it's total it's garbage. garbage. It's garbage. So, what Bob was referring to is the fact that, you know, actually, once you get a certain complexity in the genome and you have sexual uh, reproduction, actually a lot of biodiversity occurs through recombination, through the mixing of genes from different individuals, not through mutations. So he's assuming that all the biodiversity is coming from mutations alone, when actually most of it comes from uh, from recombination. So that's a flaw prem- flawed premise from which he started. So his calculations are meaningless. The other thing he's doing here is he's saying that God created, there was not one creation. 
that God created things over time, right? So, again, this Why, is Why, was where, he lazy? He's, this is where he's, this, he calls this God's step-by-step creation. <laughs> so, again, he really is just rendering the, the, uh, his theory uh. unfalsifiable by saying that, you know, God created things over time so that they would appear in, you know, a more or less evolutionary pattern, which, you know, is nonsense. And just, again, just really just renders his, his model technically unfalsifiable and his attempt to argue that it's that it's that it's testable is false it's backwards you know he gets it totally backwards again just reveals a profound profound ignorance of the process of science but is helpful as a model for you know for for teaching how science is supposed to work you know it's it's actually the one useful thing that creationists do is provide endless examples of what science is not and therefore facilitate and sometimes teaching what science is you simply cannot put a white coat on this smelly pile of crap. I mean, you have to give but, him credit. He did manage to, uh, you know, piss off both the scientific establishment and the creationists because they don't like his sort of take on, evo- on uh, creationism either. Since it does, well, he pissed know. off the young Earth creationists, right? Right, <laughs> because he's because he allows for an old Earth, and he also, you know, does try to get some credibility by by arguing against some of their more absurd. Positions, you know, like the the Grand Canyon was created in a day. This guy, so he, he's kind of like the uh, the chiropractor guy that wants to be legit. Yeah, uh, uh, giving him way uh, too much credit. This, this is, is you know, this again. He has religious views, and yeah, he's desperately trying to dress them up as science, but he's too ignorant of science to do it well. Or he's just he has to be intellectually dishonest because if you know his his task is impossible. You can't make an unscientific or non-scientific notion scientific. So given an impossible task, your only option is to fake it, is, is, to, is to be intellectually dishonest. So he is. And a fine job he's doing. And a fine job he's doing. <laughs> the next email comes from Jason Fernie in Kansas City, Missouri. And Jason writes, Dear Steve et al., hey you guys, in all 88 episodes you have not, to my knowledge, discussed my favorite pseudoscience of all, near-death experiences. As a reformed Art Bell cultist during the 90s, you've pretty much finished up my deprogramming and returned me to the world of the living. However, one story has still stuck with me all these years, and I have to admit, it still fascinates me beyond words, despite the complete lack of empirical evidence. I'm speaking of Daniel Brinkley, author of Saved by the Light and At Peace in the Light, in which he chronicles his story of being struck by lightning while speaking on the telephone as it passed through an underground line, after which he was pronounced dead at the scene only to revive on a hospital gurney some 30 minutes later with a sheet pulled over his head and a toe tag on. I don't believe these particular events are in dispute. However, his recounting of where he was during that half hour was quite extraordinary. Since we have a practicing neurologist on the panel, I would be most interested to hear his discussion on the matter. Of course, everyone else will no doubt have their opinions as well. You know, the whole notion of near-death experience is very interesting. So basically what multiple people have reported is that, you know, uh, that um, after recovering from a near-death experience, whether they had a heart attack or their heart stopped, they had to get CPR or they, were, they had a drowning or whatever, that they report you know, a story where they felt like they were floating above their body. They may have seen a, a tunnel with a light. They may have they remember encounters with lost loved ones, you know, family members who had died before them. And this, you know, has been interpreted as, you know, the spirit having left the body, gone to heaven or wherever, and then gets sucked back into the body when the when the 
the resuscitation is successful and the person is brought back to life. However, you know, all of the components of the typical near-death experience are pretty easily explainable neurologically. Um, for example, the floating above the body. That can be reproduced chemically and electrically. Uh, they, there is a, there's, a part of the, there's a part of the brain that gives you your sense of being in your body. And if you turn that off or disrupt it, then you, have a, then you feel like you're floating above your body. You, not only do, you don't just have a sense of being out of your body. You actually see your body. You feel like you are floating above yourself. You actually – And you, you see your body in the, in the room, in the, in the world. Oh, your brain is creating that image. Yes. Right. Yes. That's right. Is it based on memory or is it based on what your eyes are seeing in your body? It's, it's, it's a combination. It's a combination of what you do see and also what you feel – and also just an internal model you have of yourself. So your brain has a model of yourself. There's a part of your brain that says, yep, here is me. Here's where I am. I'm in myself, and myself is in the universe. Sometimes and lots of funky things can go wrong with that. There's, there's, there's a shadow um, anomaly where people think that there's somebody following them all the time, and it's like just an echo of their internal picture of themselves. So there's like the shadow self following them everywhere. So all of the things are just you know disruptions in this very interesting part of the brain that gives us our sense of of being inside of our bodies and being part of the world. So, and we can reliably you know point to that part of the brain, disrupt it somehow, and create this experience. You can also pretty reliably create this experience with certain drugs, and also um, some patients who have epilepsy and have seizures in this part of the brain can have similar experiences. In fact. I had I had a patient myself who had um, the absolutely typical textbook near-death experience during their seizures. Every time they had a seizure, they had an out-of-body near-death experience. <clears throat> did, the, did the patient think that he was having a mystical, mystical experience, Dave? You know, he had what we call hyper-religiosity, okay. uh, which is, you know, sometimes just... Joan of Arc. A, like Joan of Arc, there's actually some speculation that Joan of Arc may have had epilepsy, and that was part of her visions and her right. hyper religiosity. Right. Uh, and uh, there, are, you know, there. Are, it's interesting that there's also parts of the brain where, you, when you have a seizure in that part of the brain, it can make you feel as if you were in the presence of God or the universe or whatever. And that people who have epilepsy in that part of the brain tend to also have this hyper religiosity. So it is a. It, I mean, he knew that they were his seizures. And yet still it was – it had sort of a profound sort of spiritual effect on him. We're just hardwired, you know, for that for that feeling. Just out of curiosity, did you try and dissuade him? Uh, well, I, did, I talked to him about the fact that that experience was his seizure and he did understand that. And that, you know, I also just talked abstractly about typically what happens in patients who have epilepsy with that kind of seizure, you know, which is – appropriate for the therapeutic relationship. Okay. Steve, was there medication to help him? Well, yeah, he was treated with anti-seizure medication and he stopped having seizures, you know. <laughs> How about that? Uh, but uh, anyway, that just, it's pretty profound evidence that this is a brain phenomenon, right? Not an, not a spiritual phenomenon, not an out-of-body phenomenon. It's something that you're, it's an experience that your brain has. I mean, absolutely. If you can reproduce it, case closed. Yeah. There are lots of reports uh, of people who re- they report seeing the CPR on undergoing them on themselves, and they like may remember details of what happens, and then report those details later, and that would seem to con- to validate the notion that they were actually there while 
the CPR was happening, that they were seeing what was actually going on. But those report The same with Daniel yeah. Brinkley. He said he saw the EMTs working on him from up above. But also uh, there were some other interesting aspects to what he saw, not only the dark tunnel, but a crystal city, a, cath- a cathedral of knowledge where 13 angels shared 100 revelations with him about the future. Some supposedly came true. I listened to this guy, and I tell you, he was somewhat compelling to listen to. I can see how you can get swept into his narrative and to buy it. Yeah, and imagine if you were a believer, how compelling it would be. Oh, forget it. Uh, but the, you know, none of these things have been validated scientifically, and it's easy to see how these stories would be generated. You know, you can pick up a lot of ancillary details, uh, you know, that you might not be aware of, and then incorporate them into your vague memory of that happened at a period of time when your when your brain's only partially functioning and not really able to to generate a full wakefulness. Steve, I think that's what and happened then, uh, with this guy. He said all this happened to him in 28 minutes, but he was paralyzed for days and days. He was partially paralyzed for weeks and months. It took him two years to learn to feed himself and to walk again, and that's a lot of downtime where he had lots of time to think. And I bet my guess would be that if uh, you could somehow communicate yeah. with him soon after his uh, his first brush with death, that his story would be very different and much less elaborate than how he presents it today. Yeah, the, exactly right. Because you know, again, I blogged about recently about the fact that you know we form our memories of events around the emotion and the meaning of the, that we think those events happen. And then the details just morph over time in order to, uh, to emphasize the emotion and the meaning that we impart to that event. So if you think you had an out-of-body experience, your memory of the details will change over time. And, and you'll, yeah, and you'll actually start to remember that, you know, maybe the nurse who was taking care of you after the fact, you'll remember seeing them in the room when you were getting your CPR. You just fuse those memories together and it'll become completely distorted. There's one quote I want to throw out there that I read on a website about this guy. Uh, it just really struck me and annoyed me. It said that after lying dead, dead for 28 minutes, now of course he wasn't really dead, you know, most likely clinically dead. He was only mostly dead. <laughs> We're not talking Good Friday After here. lying dead for 28 <laughs> minutes on the hospital stretcher, Daniel had to navigate back to his stiffening body. Yeah, like Rick and Mortis is setting in and this guy sits up. Come on, stiffening body? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's nonsense. I, I mean, the, the fact that, it, you know, listen, it's actually, you know, we talked about incompetence before, <laughs> like with the, with the Fermi lab thing. And sometimes some some things you may be surprised that that can happen even to experts. Um, it's actually not that hard to pronounce somebody's somebody dead who's not dead, and it happens more often than you might think. I've done it like if, four times. Yeah, if <laughs> if uh, the the heart you know really slows down and the breath breaths become very shallow, you know to a to to a moderate moderately detailed exam somebody could look dead but you know that their heart could be beating just enough to be keeping their brain alive they might be taking some shallow breaths actually oxygen you don't need to breathe that much to get enough oxygen in your blood to keep the cells alive you know again over over a period of time and then you know obviously it was enough that it was it kept his tissues going until eventually you know he woke up but he was not dead he was never dead certainly it would not even be enough time for rigor mortis rigor mortis and no one has ever come back from rigor mortis you know when these well, near death experiences are near death no one is yeah. ever actually dead where their cells were rotting Mostly away I mean, they were dead. which means that throughout these experiences their brain cells are still capable of functioning to some degree enough to create 
experiences and memories that they later get, you know, whatever, woven into this uh, out-of-body or near-death experience story. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts. Two are genuine and one is fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready? Oh, I am. Yes. Jack, a lot, lot of pressure on you, Jack. Ready? This is your first science or fiction. Hey, Jack. Oh, jeez. I could be at I could be you a Actually, my God, zero, statistically, huh? Jack could be in the lead. If he wins you can the refuse That's to true. answer, too. True. All right, here we go. I probably have like a one in three chance. Here we go. So, Number uh, one. A new study shows that the number of male births in the U.S. and Japan have been decreasing for the past 30 years. Item number two, new study suggests that human evolution is not only continuing, it is accelerating. And item number three, a new study shows that smoking actually has a protective effect against certain types of cancer. Bob, go first. Let's see. Number of male births have been decreasing on in U.S. and Japan the past thirty years. Evolution is accelerating. Uh, smoking has a protective effect. Uh, accelerating evolution. I can't buy that. What do you one. say, Bob? Uh, decreasing male births—that's slightly more believable. Um, I'm going to go with one. Decreasing male births. With the male births planet. Okay. All right, Evan. I'm tempted to agree with Bob here about the male birth rate decreasing so i will say that that is fiction okay jay well i think this one is pretty easy to be honest with you guys i'm going to pick the evolution one because we're not evolving anymore okay perry uh yeah this uh this one's pretty easy smoking uh can protect it of course smoking is one of the healthiest things you can do um, I, I advocated <laughs> that a high fat diet. all forms of, of, of illness and, and malady. So that one's clearly true. Evolution accelerating? Absolutely. In fact, two weeks ago, I was a goldfish. <laughs> so I, I'm going to have to say that, that decreasing, uh, you know, the males, yeah, false. Okay. Jack, after listening to the rogues' keen analysis wow. <laughs> of science or fiction this week, what do you think? I'm going to go out on a limb and go with the uh, cigarettes protecting against cancer. As being fiction. All right. Correct. Let's start with number one. A new study shows that the number of male births in the U.S. and Japan have been decreasing for the past 30 years. I believe Bob, Evan, and Perry all chose this one as fiction. And this one is fact. This one is science. This one is science. Um, This is a, a University of Pittsburgh study. Shows in the past 30 years, number of births has decreased each year in the U.S. and Japan. By you know, they basically reviewing all birth records. They note that the decline in births is equivalent to 135,000 fewer white males in the U.S. and 127,000 fewer males in Japan over the past three decades. The pattern of decline in the ratio of male to female births remains largely unexplained, but they think there may be some environmental factor at work. Very interesting. Environmental factor. Hmm. Now, Jay, you think that the second one, new studies suggest that human evolution is not only continuing, it is accelerating. You believe that that one is fiction. Well, can I just... You should change your answer, Jay. No, I, I, I just don't get it. We're not evolving anymore. Isn't it the obvious one? Steve will get it to is, it. It is the obvious one, and that's why that one is science. That one is true. <laughs> Three, 
I read about three. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so this is you know interesting, and you know actually I believe I've reported on something along these lines before, specifically about the evolution of intelligence. That in fact there are certain genes for human in- that genes that pro- that are uh, correlate with greater intelligence. These are genes involved in brain development that are actually increasing in frequency over over historical time, which I found surprising for the same reason that you guys did that. You know, I thought that we were a large outbred population that was stable and not changing over time. And in fact, this if if true, if this really pans out, this would be extremely surprising and would actually cause a quote-unquote radical reappraisal of – evolutionary change in the in the context of large populations like like homo sapiens i mean since there's like six billion people around now just just by the very fact that there is a larger population wouldn't that allow for more variation within the group yes it allows for more variation that we are so-called outbred population but the question is you know that uh, can new genes or new new variations of genes propagate through such a large population and can selective pressures effectively work upon them. Uh, the, the conventional thinking is that you really need sort of small, isolated populations for significant evolution to occur. Not, but not that it's impossible in large populations. I mean, there still is gene sorting and sort of changes in gene frequencies over time can play, take place. If, if genes actually are advantageous, then you still will see that. But you won't see significant or rapid a evolutionary change, more just like sort of changes in gene frequency over time. But this, uh, but they basically there was a look at fossil records of humans over the last couple hundred thousand years, and they also looked at uh, genetic information over more recent time, um, looking at gene frequencies, and, and they suggest that humans, uh, that the, the the Homo sapien lineage has actually been continuing to change since its inception a couple hundred thousand years ago. Uh, and that, in fact, if anything, the pace of that change has been accelerating. So this is pretty, pretty radical. Steve, does this mean we're all heading for the Talosian form, the, the big brain, ball-headed guys? Is that? It's basically the X-Men. I think the mutant abilities are going to start popping out any day now. I want the big head. You want the big head? Oh, I want the big brain head <laughs> thing. So this this research is being carried out mainly by Gregory Cochran of the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. So, now, granted, granted, this is you know, pretty pretty new type of uh, of research, and it still has yet to to really go through the 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 meat grinder of scientific peer review. So we have to see how this all pans out. But that's what his research strongly suggests. So, which means that number three, a new study shows that smoking actually has a protective effect against certain types of cancer is fiction. Now, the real article on which I based that uh, that fiction is a new study which shows that smoking and caffeine have a protective effect against the development of Parkinson's disease. Now, Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative disorder, um, and this is actually not the first study to show a possible protective effect for smoking from a neurodegenerative disorder. That Previous studies have shown that it's there's also a possibly a similar effect for Alzheimer's disease, which is another neurodegenerative disorder. So it's not really certain what the effect is, you know, what the, what the biochemical basis of the effect is. Um, and it's interesting that this new study also correlated it with caffeine, although, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to, to really draw a firm cause and effect conclusion from that. But, you know, nicotine's a drug. 
and it could certainly be ha- you know have effects. They don't all have to be bad. They could have some effects that turn out to be protective. So it's not implausible. I certainly don't recommend that anyone start smoking because you know these diseases are certainly less common than the diseases that cancer increases your risk for. The number one, two, and three killers, in, at least in this country, are heart attacks, cancer, and stroke. And stroke and smoking increases your risk of all three of those things. Well, I guess if you die from you know one of those three, you're much less likely to develop that's Parkinson's. Right. Uh, that's actually an interesting point. I don't think that that was a factor in this study, but um, that is one of those statistical things that researchers have to learn about early, that an intervention which causes people to die early may actually seem to have a protective effect against diseases which occur later. So that's one of the pitfalls of doing correlation studies and epidemiological studies, that one of the things that you have to look well, at. That's what for. Bob Perry and I were thinking when we guessed uh, the other way. but Clearly. Right. I'm sure. So Jack, your nice first work, time Jack. out... You are the sole 100%. victor. You are the sole victor. Right. We just wanted to make Jack feel well. Honestly, had you read that, or did, did you guess, or how'd you, how'd you come to it? No, no, I just, I, I guess. You had like a one in three chance. Yeah, I mean, I had a one in three chance, <laughs> and uh, it seemed like, you know, the most ridiculous one of the right. bunch. So. And you Jay, smart? you should have changed your answer after you heard the first one was wrong. Yeah. No, I really thought that, I really thought I had it right there. So, you know, I was wrong. Clearly. Clearly. Yeah. That, that was that was the tricky one this week. Hi, right. Evan. Read last week's puzzle. Last for us. week's puzzle was the following: Please be still, my beating heart, for the best kiss of my life. That tingling on my skin does start. In vain, my stress can cause much strife. What am I describing? And I am in fact describing a polygraph test. Did anyone get it, Evan? No, nobody got it. That's two weeks in a row. Wow. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's two weeks. I, I thought for sure someone would uh, would pick up on that. So here's the uh, in, right here in Wikipedia, the first sentence under polygraph. A polygraph, commonly yet incorrectly referred to as a lie detector, is a device that measures and records several physiological variables, such as blood pressure, pulse, respiration, and skin conductivity, while the subject is asked a series of questions. Hence the four lines of the poem I put together having to do with each of those, blood pressure, pulse, respiration, skin conductivity, the answer is the polygraph. So, no winners this week. What's your puzzle for this week? Here is this week's puzzle. I wrote 3,768 lines of code using four different languages to be spread over a thousand years. Who am I? So, chew on that for a while, and good luck, everyone. Thanks, Thank Evan. You. Bob, do you have a quote for us this week to close out the show? Yes, I have a quote from Wilson Misner, American playwright. He said, I respect faith, but doubt is what gets you an education. Excellent. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining me again. It was a great show. Jack, thanks for, thanks for standing in for Rebecca. We appreciate you uh, being our first listener guest. Excellent. Panelist. We had fun. Maybe, maybe we'll Excellent. do it again. Anytime, guys. Sure. Good night. Good night, all. Good night, all. Good night everyone. Until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation. 
For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Problems, proof, endless delays.